All right, so but today I'm actually introducing the Colossian letter. And Paul has actually never been to Colossia and he's writing from prison around AD 60. And in this very particular context, he basically writes the letter of Colossian. And what I'm going to do is to set the scene, I'm going to use a little short clip because I think it explained very well the context of the time. Okay, so bear with me. There we go. And I'll see you after. That's practical Zoom for this, isn't it? Paul is in a prison in Rome. Epaphras, a good friend, comes to visit him and shares about his grief. He had founded a church in Colossae, a city in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, today we call this region Turkey. The congregation consisted of a mix of Gentiles and resettled Jews. Actually, everything was going quite well, but then problems came up. So what was the problem with the local church in Colossae? Okay, to explain the whole situation, we must first simplify the whole religious and philosophical universe. Generalizing, there are three main groups in humanity and therefore also three main schools of thought in this world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.32, give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. So the Jews would be the conservatives on the right, while the Greeks are the leftist liberals. And the third group, the Ecclesia, the Church of God, has nothing to do with either, because it is not of this world, but heavenly. The Ecclesia has its own system of thought, which does not come from people, but from God himself. Now, because the Colossians were a mix of both Jews and Greeks, that is, non-Jews influenced by Greek philosophy, they had problems in both directions to the left and to the right. Not very cool, but even better for us because we can see how the Holy Spirit through Paul brings both systems of thought under the obedience of Christ. Or, in other words, how he dwarfed both the right and the leftist reasonings. But before we dive into the details, let's zoom out and place this letter not only in its historical context, but also his biblical context. We will see how God used historical and geographical events to write a letter which is still relevant for you today in the 21st century. Not only that, but he also fits these writing into a broader spectrum of teaching and doctrines. And this is perhaps the most important part of all. So let's compare the letter to the Colossians with Romans and Ephesians. And let's see what that will bring. We have already taken a good look at the book of Romans. And there we learn how a sinful man can be justified before a holy God. The core lesson is that we should not try to ferociously punch ourselves into becoming Mr. Perfect, puffing up our ego on how we are a splendid human being who keeps the law throughout our own efforts, but that we must die and be buried with Christ. In Ephesians, the Christians are already considered dead and are resurrected to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. So, what we lack is a real link that closes the gap between these two letters. And this is where Colossians comes in. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This verse connects the two letters in Romans logic, while the following verse connects them in Ephesians logic. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. Another point of comparison is the Ecclesia, the church, and how each of these individual letters talk about it. 
In Romans, the church is described as a body with many members, while in both Colossians and Ephesians, we see the church through a head-body relationship point of view. The Lord Jesus being the head of the church and the church the body. In the letter to the Ephesians, the focus is on the members of the body, while in Colossians, the focus is the head. And there's a good reason for this. However, we will approach that in our next video. All you must keep in mind for our next video is that there are problems in Colossae, Jewish legalism and Greek thinking and philosophy. And also, very important, that the letter speaks in the overall biblical context of Christ as the head of the body. Not too hard, oh? All right. See you then in the next video. Right, I hope that you find this uh, little video interesting. I certainly did. And I'm going to just unpack it a little bit for you. So in the first, uh, and what, what is really important to say first is actually the letter of Colossians is really big, like most other letters that Paul has written. In the first few chapters of Colossians, you will get the central doctrinal truth. So that's what we find in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. And then there's a second part of the letter, which is much more practical with, you know, applied way of living. So the central doctrinal truth of the whole letter here in Colossians is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and that everything points to his greatness and his glory. The focus is on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in everything and all things as he is the creator and the redeemer of all things. So the purpose of the letter then is to correct wrong ideologies and dangerous teaching that were uh, thought at the time in the cultural, cultural environment of the time, like you just seen in this short video. And those wrong theological thinking or wrong cultural, sorry, thinking, there was two of them. One of them was that Jesus is not a bolt on onto other gods, He's actually the only God, is the head, and he has full authority. And that was correcting the Greek thinking of polytheism, of multiple God um, and multiple access, if you want, to heaven. And the second correction is actually uh, salvation is by grace and through Jesus. So we are free from legalism. And that was correcting the Jewish thinking um, and there was a lot of Christian with Jewish background who were kind of trying to still juggle the rules from the, the Torah and were quite judgmental in their thinking and judging other for doing certain things that they would not want to do in their traditional Jewish faith. So uh, Paul is coming and address this by looking at this central doctrinal truth that Christ is the head of the church and we need to look at him as he has um, everything we need and his supremacy is the most important point. Now, the second part of the letter, the two following chapters, really address the practical aspect of how we live then from, the, from this truth. So we apply those truths and we look at how in Jesus there is a new way of life and a new way to do relationships. So the second part of the letter, we basically speak about how to put to death all sinful practices and how to clothe ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit.
And then you will address relationships and look at how the, fam the family relationship works and how um, work dynamics uh, can work as well in Christ. So why is it actually important for us? I actually think that the structure of the book itself is teaching us something here. You see, it's absolutely vital when we have a problem, when we have disagreement on beliefs or where we behave or when we are living circumstances that are tough, it's very absolutely important that we don't try to justify our conduct or practices by supporting them afterwards by uh, biblical verses. What we do first is we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus, our role model, and we look at the fundamental truth of Christianity. And then we then understand and we uh, try to then walk in a godly way. It's first of all, we look at Jesus and then practically we work out what does it mean to really conduct ourselves to his glory. Um, so, for example, our culture today, of course, it, it, it influenced the way we think and behave, just like the Jewish and Greek culture did at the time. Uh, but what is important is we are called to live according to the culture of heaven, and therefore we are called to behave according to the culture of heaven. This is why Galatians 3 verse 26 uh, says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So basically, whatever social class, gender, culture you're coming from, we are all called to walk by the spirit and clothes ourselves with Christ. So we are all um, taking on a new way of living. We can't say, oh, I'm doing that because guess what? I'm French, that's what French people do. Or that's what women do, or that's what my family taught me to behave like. By the spirit of God, we all learning a new way of living that comes from who God is. And that is the core of our unity, the fact that the culture of heaven is the most important. So let, let, take me, let, let me take an example, and it's a little bit of a funny thing, and I'm sorry I'm stereotyping a little bit, but it's got to be what it is. So I used to teach in a large um, uh, department. Uh, obviously, the, mostly, most people were British in this department, but there was one French, me, and one Italian. It sounds like one of these jokes. Isn't it? Already at that point, I had actually just adjusted my behavior because, you know, um, it's quite a funny story. But one day, one of my best friend, British friend, asked me an opinion about some new artwork she hanged on in a corridor. And let's say that on this occasion, I forgot the very good sentence it's interesting, uh, and I kind of offended her by giving an opinion. Uh, so I had learned to adjust my cultural kind of communication to, to, to be fitting in this department. But what was really strange is with my Italian friend, I noticed I 
very much reversed into full Mediterranean communication. So when my Italian friend and I, we were together, we would argue, uh, we would debate very passionately, very loudly. And actually, um, when my, my colleague was, uh, Italian colleague was frustrated, he would actually walk off uh, in frustration. And you know what? It didn't really bother me. But it was really shock horror for our, our, our British friend. He was thinking, what are these two guys on about? It was really shocking and frightening for them and very scary. Now, my English colleagues, they were, I mean, they were amazing women and they were so polite. Uh, you know, they, they were really creating a great atmosphere at, at, at work. Um, but what I did notice is they were not always able to tell what they needed uh, to the right person. And sometimes there was a little bit of talking behind backs and things like that. So what should we do in this situation? We should always apply heaven's culture because you know, every culture has got good and bad uh, beliefs and practice, okay? For example, talking with your hand, which we did, you know, it's very neutral, it's fine. But when we look at this behavior, what we do is we look at Jesus. And when Jesus does is, um, you know, he models how we should behave. So Jesus, for example, was not afraid to confront people with truth. But what he was always doing is loving people. And loving people was this absolutely priority for him. So he would use patience and he, was, he would use grace. Grace and patience would always be at the core of what Jesus is. The our conclusion is in this particular context I was talking here is we always need to learn to speak the truth in love. That's what the Bibles tell us to do. So the French and the Italian culture needs to reflect more the culture of heaven by, you know, start to honoring people and love them and not hurt them when, when they speak or when they are expressing their opinions. And then the British people, in my example, they need, needed to be more the culture of heaven, but, you know, uh, learning to be authentic and say what you need to the right people and carry on being loving. So in everything we do, that's what we do. We look at the biblical fundamental truth and then we define what is godly behavior. Uh, and that's the only way we will be able to uh, celebrate our diversity and at the same time pursue the absolutely unity. If we do not do that, uh, we're in danger of um, not uh, applying the Bible way. Well, you know, I, we know a lot of Christians who are actually justifying hatred practices by biblical verse like, an eye for an eye or things like that and that not that is not the way you look at first who jesus is what are the biblical truth you know that is taught us and then we look at the practice so this now looked a little bit at the beginning of this letter uh, paul starts by two prayers and one is of thanksgiving and one is of petition and today we're going to look at the thanksgiving um, uh, part of this prayer so it reads we always thank god the father of our lord jesus christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stirred up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. That has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, 
just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ and in our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the spirit. What a model here. You see, Paul has never met the Colossian, but they are on his heart. And notice here, he writes this letter to correct their theological thinking. So, so before to correct people, he shows his affection. And, and his first comments are full of affection. He say, he thanks God when he prays for them, starting for, with what's amazing about the Colosseum. He's, he, he talks them about the good report is heard about them, about their love. And that's really the heart of a true leader, a true leader. And it shows us where the father's heart, that's how the father is with us. You know, his correction is sweet. First, he looks at, you know what, you're my child. And I love you. I love the fact that you love well, that you believe in me. That's how the father would be, you know. It's affection before correction, and his correction will come sweetly. Now, clearly, this letter is given, you know, uh, through Epaphras, who is the leader. And we know Epaphras is leader because Paul is praising Epaphras for the work he's done with, with them and for the way he's taught them the gospel. But notice, he's not giving the letter to Epaphras for him to hold on to it and then disseminate the, the knowledge. No, the letter is read to the whole body of Christ in Colossea. And he addresses, therefore, the whole body of Christ directly. There is this sense that all of us, all the body of Christ, we have this responsibility to hear and work out together the word of God as a body. This is really important. Because the leaders, of course, have got great responsibility into teaching, envisioning, and guarding the people. But people, um, you know, they are not here to be controlled, you know, by the leaders. And the leaders' role is very much to connect, connect the people to Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing, is bringing the people to Jesus, even as he's correcting them. Now, notice as well, before any request and petition, Paul comes with thanksgiving. His thanksgiving is to God, the author of all good things. And the subject of his gratitude here is the evidences that God is at work within his people. And I, I, I think this point taught me a little lesson. You know, when we pray for people and for situation, we should do the same. Let's come with thanksgiving first and look for the evidence of work at work, uh, sorry, for the evidence of God at works among us and amongst his people. So we might pray for someone and for a problem they are, or, or maybe they need healing, but we could thank God for the work of God in them. We can praise God for what he's doing among us and in this situation and in our circumstances before we actually talk, talk to God about the problem. Now, so what are the evidence that God is at work amongst the Colossians? The subject 
of Paul's gratitude. And what encourages him the most is the testimony of faith in Jesus and the love that the Colosseum have for their brothers and sister. And this faith and love comes from the hope that heaven has given them. And there is a clear parallel there. He made the parallel with the gospel, meaning hearing the gospel, not any gospel, uh, the real true gospel, the gospel based on grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel creates fruits everywhere. And what are the fruits that the gospel brings? Faith, love, and hope. So the logical conclusion for the readers here is that the fruits we see from the gospel are the fruit you can see among the Colossians. And that's faith, hope, and love. Any newborn again Christian produces this fruit, faith, hope, and love. As soon as we are connected to Christ, we produce good fruits and the fruits are faith, hope, and love. We have faith in Jesus. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. And we believe we are saved and we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to life. And we are in relationship with God, forgiven, redeemed, and on a journey to become more and more Christ-like. We have hope in the good news of the gospel because we are adopted by God and, and we are citizens of heaven. And that's what, that what's keeping us going, even when it's tough. We are our eyes on the finish line and on the promises of God. And, you know, we believe. And because we hope in, a, in him, we will never be put to shame. He is the God of breakthrough. And I'll just refer you back to the amazing talk that Steve Backer did last week on hope. And finally, we love each other. That's the essence of God, to love. Our mission is to love God and to love others and ourselves well and to make disciples in Jesus. That's actually the most important one. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians um, um, uh, 13 that in faith and hope and love, love is the biggest one, the one that will remain. So this free element, faith, hope and love was found in Colossae. And that is why Paul is so grateful. Although clearly those guys were not perfect, although clearly they were even believing wrong things and they needed to follow Christ's example uh, better by the Holy Spirit. And we will see next week, Paul is go going on by praying for more wisdom in them. But although all this thing, the fruit of the gospel was evident in this place. So I will end up uh, uh, this, this talk by saying that to simplify, when we look at a church, we want to see those free things, those free fruit. You know, ease of faith in Jesus. That's number one. And have we got hope based on heaven's promises? We should look at, on that. Is there hope in this place? And finally, above all, do we love well? Do we know how to love well? Those are the three things we should look at. Listen, we could have or we could try to have perfect behavior, 
according to the rules uh, that we think are right, according to the Bible. But the main thing actually is to have the fruit of the gospel, evidences that God is at work among us, faith, hope, and love. We start by that. We start by being born again of the spirit, living by the spirit, and producing those, tr- those fruit of faith, hope, and love. And then what happens is we're learning about who Jesus is. We look at the fundamental truth, and we let those things impact our life and developed by the Holy Spirit, a new way of living. And we will see that's fundamentally what you will find in Colossians' in Colossian's letter. And that's what we are going to look at the next few weeks.